Hey guys, welcome to Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to my podcast. Joining me back by popular demand, Sammy, for the intro. Hey, Sammy. Hi. Back from California. Yeah, it feels good to be back. Feels great to have you here in the office. Um, I was really sad last week. I was sad too. It felt weird just talking to myself. You sent me threatening messages. I'm I'm used to talking to myself in my regular day-to-day life, but not for the podcast. Usually I need somebody to talk to. You should have put that little E.T. doll on the chair I'm sitting on now. That's true. (laughs) Who says I don't do that anyway when you're not in the office? That's true. Uh, For context, yes, I have a weird little E.T. doll that has like a, what is it on E.T.'s head? Cat ears and... Cat ears is scarf. He's holding a basketball. Yeah. He's also facing the corner, like in the Blair Witch Project, (laughs) right before they get killed. They have to stand in the corner. Wasn't wasn't the character at the end Josh? All I remember from watching Blair Witch the first time, years and years ago, was that, like, her screaming, Josh! Josh! It was like hearing my name screamed for, like, 20 minutes at the end. It was very disconcerting, as uh, I have a cerebral hemorrhage. Um, (laughs) And he's out. No, no, I'm still here. Um, The reason I am tripping over my words is I'm very excited because I just taped this week's podcast, this week's interview um, with, this is a big one for me. I know I, I feel like I say that every other week. If I don't say it on a week, that means I don't really care about the guests. a lot of good people. But this is a huge one for me, guys. For any big film fan, um, Michael Mann is is kind of the man. He really is. He, <laughs> I see what you did there. No, he really is. He is, of course, uh, directed um, Heat, Last Mohicans, The Insider, um, Manhunter, uh, so many great films, Thief. And most recently, uh, last year, he directed a film called Black Hat starring Chris Hemsworth. And um, he is... The, so the reason for this this interview, it's it's fun to interview somebody when they're frankly not hawking a product. Like there's not that like weight of like okay, we gotta get to the thing. Frankly, Michael Mann is just in town because he's being celebrated at uh, BAM Brooklyn Academy of Music, um, where they're showing all of his films. Um, this week, as I tape this, we're, they're, they're continuing uh, throughout his filmography. I think it goes into even a little bit early next week. So if you're hearing this on Monday, there might still be a chance to check out some of his films. If not, sorry. If not, you missed it. <laughs> you missed a great time. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, I got a chance to watch. I, I made a point of going to see Heat on the big screen, which I have not seen since it came out in 1995. And uh, it is not Sammy the one with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> don't, I wasn't, don't embarrass me Well, before here. we started, she asked me, she was like, wait, remind me, is, did he do the heat or heat? Which heat? <laughs> I was like the Sandra Bullock, Melissa McCarthy classic. Look, I'd love to have Paul Feig, who directed that on soon, and hopefully we'll have him on for Ghostbusters, but no, we're talking Heat, <laughs> Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, Ashley Judd, everybody uh, killed it in that movie. It's a classic, and... Amazing to see that on the big screen. Uh, and then I saw Black Hat last night, which is, which for context, so we talk about Black Hat a little bit in the beginning of this conversation because Black Hat, when it came out last year, uh, it didn't frankly get a huge reception either commercially or critically, uh, which is unusual for a Michael Mann film. It's a film about cybercrime and, um, Michael has taken the liberty for, for no like no one told him to do it. He except that he wanted to. He's recut the film in uh, in a pretty significant way. So the film I saw last night, the film that a few hundred people saw last night, is a much a different Black Hat. Frankly, a much better Black Hat. I really enjoyed it. Um, they, he's changed continuity in terms of putting events that happen later in the film earlier and a lot of changes. That's I, so cool. It is cool. So I would think he. Uh, we talk about it. He doesn't confirm whether it's going to be on Blu-ray anytime soon, but I, I got to think they're going to 
release a different version of this at some time. So hopefully everybody gets a chance to see his uh, bigger and better version of Black Hat. Um, I remember when the, I first saw the trailer for that movie and I was yeah. like, okay, Chris Hemsworth is a computer hacker. Right, right. I'm like, Thor's a computer <laughs> hacker. Give him, give him but, respect. The guy's got but, chops. He's good. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, he's got... He can handle it. Yeah, he was great in Rush, etc. Yeah, I'm like, so, uh, Thor's got it. He's got it. So, so, and yeah, this, Call this, me Chris. this <laughs> please, <laughs> this interview. Um, I apologize in advance for gushing that happens in the interview. I try to keep it in check, but I, I'm legitimately a huge, huge Michael Mann fan. And uh, this is kind of like a greatest hits discussion. We talk a lot about um, Thief and his beginnings, but a lot about Heat and Mohicans and um, uh, Collateral and uh, all the way up through Black Hat. So. It's a rare opportunity to get this kind of in-depth conversation with a filmmaker of his uh, of his accomplishment, frankly, and someone that's really been at the forefront of the digital revolution in terms of going from film to digital. Uh, and um, you know, there's no mistaking a Michael Mann film. He's he cannot be. Um, mistaken for anybody else who's use of music etc it's that exactly so that's this week's show um what else to mention i have a quick question yeah. viewer question from me okay what who have you embarrassed yourself most by gushing over during the interview oh. do you think michael mann yeah uh, Kurt Russell, you you were pretty excited about <laughs> Kurt Russell you were a little worked up about I was really excited. um Guillermo, obviously, yeah. You always well, the difference in those is like they're infectious and they're like so. Kurt and Guillermo, Ron, Ron Howard, yeah, yeah, okay. but Just Ron, yeah. The, the difference with those is that they're very effusive guys, and Michael Mann is like this is he's like tough Chicago stock. He's kind of like a little little taciturn, a little dry. It's perfectly nice. Like to, get, to set the scene here, okay, this is interesting. So he walks in the room. I've never interviewed him in person before, and I'm a little intimidated going in because, like I say, this is like. He's a tough guy. He's from Chicago. He write he writes and directs films about yeah, hard criminals. Yeah, but you're from criminals. the Upper West Side, man. <laughs> <laughs> the tough streets of West 70th. Um, <laughs> and he walks in. I'm not joking. He walks in with a folder underneath his arm. Puts the folder on the desk. Has like tab. I notice as the interview's going on, there are tabs for like different like projects of his. I don't know if he's he's just got a lot of things. I think I feel like he's doing prep on his next film during the interview. He also puts down on the table. A digital recorder and hits record as he sits down, <laughs> which I gotta respect. I mean, th th I mean, this is a guy, and I, some people have done this over the years with me and other journalists, where they, frankly they've been misquoted and they want to cover their ass and and, and <laughs> basically say, you know, if something comes back where they disagree with how things went down, they can say, well. I've got a recording there. And then not so bad. Exactly. So, you know what? I mean, he lived up to kind of like, you know, th that's who Michael Mann should be. So, um, that set the tone. In, awesome. That set the tone in the beginning. But I got over my jitters, hopefully, and had a coherent conversation uh, because there are a few things I'm more well-versed in than Michael Mann movies. So, I was ready for this one. Um not a lot more to say except... I hope he, re he releases the real version of the interview at some point <laughs> versus this one that no. you cut together having him be like, I love Josh Horowitz. <laughs> no, there's none of that. There's none of that. He saved his gushing for after the interview. He was Got very, it. He was very, you guys cut. He was very nice after the interview. I will say that. Um, <laughs> he passed the test. He did. Um, not much else to say except... Uh, 
Oscars around the corner. I'm going to be there on the red carpet for MTV. So uh, more to come on that one. Um, and you need me to come with you, right? Always. We're, we're going to do a live. <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing? Live podcast intro. Oh, great. On the, <laughs> on the red carpet. I'm sure. I'm sure everybody there will appreciate that. Yeah. Um, no, I'll be doing my shenanigans, my usual silly dance in a tuxedo for that. <laughs> Luckily, it's just a metaphor. I'm not actually dancing. We'll see. We'll see. Um, enough preamble. We've talked long and hard enough. Uh, here is my extensive conversation with a true visionary, one of the best out there. Uh, enjoy Michael Mann. Let's dive right in. There's no official introduction. If there were an official introduction, uh, your head might explode because I'm a, I'm a tremendous fan of your work, sir. And uh, it's it's been a pleasure. There are few ple greater pleasures than prepping for an interview with Michael Mann because oh, um, it's just an excuse to revisit films that I love. Um, Black Hat was fun last night. Uh, I was Good. there. Um, you're being feted currently at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And... Um, Give me a sense. I mean, let's start with Black Hat, if we could, because that's, I think, something that a lot of fans of your work are curious about. You introduced it as as a revised cut. What, mm -hmm. what, would, what would you call it? I mean, is it is it a director's cut? How did this Why? one manifest? Well, no, because the director the director cut the last cut too. So it's actually it's how he distinguishes it. They're both director's cuts. So you were happy with the cut that came out in theaters to set the? No, I wasn't one hundred percent happy. Okay, with it. you know, it it uh, it was a. I mean. It was a challenging film to do because the uh, the ambition of the film was to was to do a what uh, um, was to do a uh, an event driven narrative, and then develop uh, the characters within scenes, but have a very very rapid event driven narrative, almost doing a kind of a, with rhythms that are almost imitative of how fast. Um, our world moves today in, in, in the digital information age. Okay? Right. So that's why. So it intentionally had a very rapidly driving plot line, and the plot line, was, the engine of that is all cyber tech. Yeah. So you had to track with, um, you know, like the search for the code of the, which turned out to be the code for the rat, and how it got on the thumb drive, and leads you on and on and on and on through various hacking techniques, yeah. like uh, downloading a keylogger when the guy thinks he's... You know. So, um, in, in moving some of the pieces around, big pieces of story around, um, I may have obfuscated uh, or made or put impediments in the way of people tracking the, um, tracking the, the events, tracking the actual basic plot. Right. So, the biggest change was to put back to the original order in which the first hack is the soy hack. Right. Because that one has, um, you know, it, it, you, 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 I think we access the stream of causality, which is that plot. Well, and in, in this new cut, I mean, the stakes build, obviously. The stakes in, build. In, with in, the, in a way. So what was the, the, the impetus? Was it, a, was it a studio note or was it your own kind of like hesitation in the, in the early cut? I responsibility for all <laughs> You're happier with this one, though. Oh, yeah, the studio guys, is, guys, are legendary studio, which is great. Yeah. Know? So it's, and I'm happy, happy with this. And there's a lot of other changes as well. This is, uh, I mean, because you've you've tweaked with with some cuts in the past of previous films, but this is by far the the biggest kind of adjustment I think um, I've seen in one of your. No, Mohicans has had quite a, has had quite a number of different. The, the current version of it 
because the current version of it is, uh, which came out in the Blu-ray about three years ago, and that's the one that was screened here at BAM. Right. We made a digital cinema package of uh, of the Blu-ray. Um, it's not the same as projecting a Blu-ray. Sure, because sure. Of the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the resolution and the color space is vastly yeah. you know, bigger uh, in what's presented on the screen. Um, that had a lot of changes, but again, that was also actually similar to Black Hat in the sense that I brought it back to the original concept yeah. more, you know, so it doesn't have the end speech by Shingashkook. It relies on the audience to deliver that sense of the, you know, the, the end of the Mohicans, the annihilation yeah. of a people, and yet his, his progeny, you know, there's a frontier in front of them. Yes. So life goes on and will progress and they will have a future. And eventually, you know, eventually their future will also come to an end. Something else will follow. Right. You know, that sense of kind of, um, so, so that, and then there's a lot of it's tightened. Some excesses were, were taken out. Uh, this black hat is probably a couple of minutes shorter. The one I released theatrically. Yeah. And there's also, I think, improvements in relationship and dialogue and a number of other. So are, are you someone, like, when the film came out initially last year, were you someone that, like, did you initially, did you immediately have kind of regret and say, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to this when I have time and, and, and some time to kind of, I don't know, reassess sort of the interpretation? Like, did the, did the fact that in the way that it re was received commercially or critically affect how you came back to it? Um, No. What, it's all internal. It's what all just didn't matter. It's totally yeah. It's pretty. It's all internal. I yeah. mean, I knew there were things that weren't right that I wanted to fix, and that's yeah. the what's wonderful about digital is that is that um, is that we're able is that we're able to to improve yeah. uh, improve these things, modify them. Uh, it's just my own personal. Uh, I'm impelled to do it personally. When I think of something, I've never touched a frame of heat or insider. I was going to say, so, so those two at least for you feel like they are yeah, what they are. They work. I, there's nothing they, I would change. I think I think a filmmaker knows when he knows mm -hmm. that this is it. This is this is the final iteration of all your ambition for what uh, this part of your imagination that you've projected on, uh, into characters and situations and, and yeah. through film form to impact an audience. That's complete. You feel that sense of completeness. I didn't feel complete. With Black Hat before, and did you feel complete sitting with an audience? You sat through the film, watching it with with an audience that received well, it quite that's well. That's the key thing. I yep. mean, to have it projected on a really large screen in front of you know uh, two hundred fifty, three hundred people, that's when you really are tuned in with yeah. how it's working. And uh, I think it's working a whole hell of a lot better. There's probably still a couple of small things. I think. <laughs> yeah. Will you release this in, in a Blu-ray, et cetera, in some form available outside uh, we'll of see. cinemas? We'll see. Right now, I mean, this really wasn't internal. I just felt that I wanted to, yeah. you know, make the significant changes that I made. I mean, one of the, the you know, I've, I've been revisiting your work in the last couple of weeks as I knew we were going to chat and, and and watching the film last night. I mean, there's some hallmarks and, and things in there that I think you do better than, than most, if not all. And one is like, I mean, the audience really responded a lot to Viola. Davis's character a lot, and it always strikes me in watching Heat recently again too, how you really love your supporting characters, and they feel right. like they they're worth, they're almost worthy of their own films, and you can imagine when when someone enters the frame in your film, you imagine their life that has come before, and you want to imagine what's to come after. Is, I mean, is that fair to say that you have you, your your passion for your characters? It transcends just the protagonist; that you have equal love for sort of the people on the periphery. 
Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And and um, I think I I, uh, I imagine them all as full-blown three-dimensional characters with complete lives. They have a backstory. I can predict where the future story might be, who yeah. their parents were, whether it's uh, Breeden, the driver in, in Heat, right. and, and his relationship with his, uh, with his wife. Um, uh, circumstances, I could have made a movie of the week just about Breeden. Yeah. Uh, you know, I met men like him in Folsom Prison. You right. know? Um, and so, and I, one, secondly, is I think that uh, when you do the kind of, what do, I, what do you want to call it, kind of anthropological immersion or submergence into various subcultures, which to me is one of the thrills of doing what I do. Sure. And, 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 you know, everybody has a life. Everybody's got a mother and father and sisters and brothers and kids, and they got, you know, domestic problems with their wife and maybe their ex-wife, and in one case, it's of John Santucci, who Thief is based on. He had right. two wives at the same time, which is very complex. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the but the dilemmas, you know, and what he thinks about the psychology, his take on, on his psychology, his wife's psychology. You know, There's a lot for a filmmaker to feast it on. Is yeah, totally dimensional. So the so consequently, when you run it, particularly in a genre, when you run into two dimensional stereotypes or archetypes, it feels so yeah. kind of shallow to me. Sure, you know, because it, it, it's so much richer when you understand and so that. I think there's a certain democratization that I believe in, in terms of all the people in the film have, are real people. They really have real lives. They really have real characters. It's my obligation to, to, to develop them fully. And I think it makes for much richer tapestry. And, and richer for the audience to revisit in different incarnations. You can almost like focus on a different, you can focus on Val's character yeah. and Heat and just sort of like zero in on that storyline if you so wish. Um, well, he's an interesting guy because it really was. His name is Chris Hurlis, and yeah. he's based on a guy named Chris Hurlis. Oh, really? <laughs> who was called Chris Trismegistus uh -huh. because uh, they, 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 all the people I know tried to kill him three times, which was the Chicago Police Department, the CIU, which is Dennis Farina. And, uh, I mean, Dennis Farina when he was a detective. Right. And Bill Lanhart and, and a whole Amazing. Charlie Adamson. I mean, people who – Charlie, I, uh, somebody I mentored into becoming a writer, and he co-created a crime story. Right. And, and was a great guy. He's passed away. Um, but in their life as as this major crime unit in Chicago, yeah. um, they were uh, had cut into this crew and uh, who were taking down um, burglaries, burglaring, right. uh, burglarizing homes of very very wealthy people. And they figured out how they were doing it, and they cut into it. And their whole um, the CIU's mo was to wait until they were going to come in and basically kill them. Right. And um, and uh, so they, three different times, they shot up a car that he was in, and he just skated on all of this. So the notion of somebody who is almost like postmodern and, and that there is no causal reason why he should successfully escape, it's all just by kind of happenstance that he gets away, that became the core of Surely, Val's character. I mean, what's, what's this is why, by the way, Edie just waves him on. I don't mean Edie. I mean uh, uh, Ash's character, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, which is, by Ashley the way, just one, just of, one of my favorite moments in the film. It's just a heartbreaking, t a touching kind of moment that that resolves that relationship. And I mean, my sense of what I was talking to my wife afterwards, and like, what happens to him after that? I'm like, he's going to run out of, he's going to run out of good luck at some point. He's he's not destined to to make it. I think. I don't know. Maybe he'll run out of luck when he runs out of charm. Maybe, yeah, that, and so he's got a lot of that, luckily. <laughs> um, Thief, which was, was your first feature, you directed Jericho Mile, of course, for television, and got some acclaim for that. I mean, what strikes me about a film like that, and I think 
I mean, I, I don't know what the reception was exactly at the time, but was but it felt like a fully formed. You were a fully formed filmmaker. Like you, you there was like a, a certainty to what you wanted to deliver mm-hmm. on screen in terms of music and image and 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 the whole shebang. Um, did you feel at that time like you were ready, itching, like this was my time? Was there any trepidation? Was there any kind of like uh, aspect of the filmmaking process that you didn't feel like you knew at that point? Um, not in no, there wasn't any trepidation about the story or tackling the making of the motion picture. Yeah. There was in terms of how to direct actors. I really hadn't had that much experience directing actors. I had in Jericho Mile, and uh, Jericho Mile had 28 convicts in Folsom and speaking parts as well, you know, as as our cast. Right. uh, But the, um, uh, including Miguel Pinheiro, by the way, who was at the time quite famous New Yorkerian um, poet who mm-hmm. had been in Sing Sing and Attica during the riots in Rikers Island, who was right. quite a character. He played on camera. He also played Calderon in Miami Vice. Oh, sure. Okay. In, yeah, in, yeah. The, uh, in the pilot and in some subsequent episodes and wrote one of the best episodes of the first season called Smuggler's Blues, huh. which was based on Glenn Fry's song Smuggler's Blues. And we decided that the lyrics should be a libretto when we based the whole episode, almost like it was an opera. Amazing. And then Glenn Fry was in it. But a lot of that, a lot of, but, um, but Pinheiro and that that uh, that whole cast were were real people mm. that I was working with, and I was actually more comfortable working with them than I was with actors. And I because didn't, you didn't know the language of acting, or the, I did what, not it know the, the language of acting, and mm-hmm. I realized exactly that, and I realized I had to learn the language of acting. So then I just took, uh, I went and took acting lessons, and was a lousy student, but I wound up <laughs> <laughs> a lousy actor. But I did wind up, um, you know, having some facility with understanding how actors, uh, you know, uh, the op- kind of the operating system that goes on within an actor. That's what I wanted to know because yeah. I wanted to be able to talk to them in, in, a, in a language and understanding that was common, common to them. And then I discovered that every actor really has his own language and there is no such thing as right. quote a method actor there's you know there's Al Pacino's got his method and De Niro has his method and so what was that experience uh, the first time around I'm curious with, with, with James Kahn because he, he's, he's, a, he's a tough cookie himself I would think like I mean did he give you the respect that you felt you deserved or, or needed um, at that point or was it a little bit of a, a learning curve yeah he did because he's very generous because he and I were I mean we had a closeness if I if I had a um, you know, if I had some shortcomings in in uh, a more sophisticated way to communicate to an actor on that film, I had uh, I had gone to great lengths, and our you know our, our relationship had evolved to you know so we we're, were we're pretty intimate. Right. We had done a lot of the, all the prep work ourselves. Uh, it wasn't like director saying to an actor, "Well, you go off and figure out how to open up sets." You were I in was it too. there yep. with them on yep. all of it. So we did all of the combat training and the and cutting the safe in half and. Um, you know, and then I immersed him in that whole world because a lot of the people who were in the film as actors were also the tech advisors who were also professionally still active as thieves. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, for example, uh, Bill Brown, who was Robert Prosky's number two. Right. I is in his late 70s and he's still on the FBI most wanted list. He was, um, and John Santucci, who's in the film as an actor, was a thief and we didn't, we didn't really have any props on that film. We just used, all of John Santucci's <laughs> tools. I mean, the people who are chasing John were also in, acting in, in parts, but they had all known each other and there was a familiarity because they all grew up together and they all lived in the same neighborhood. Yeah. So there's no problem socializing. 
because they do that all the time anyway. Right. But at the same time, you know, when Dennis Farina in the in a, in a crime story pilot beats up John Santucci in the alley, he beat up John Santucci because that's what he was used to doing. Because that was his method of, you know, fascinating. Being an I mean, I mean, you mentioned Farina. I mean, he he's one that 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 acted for the first time in your films in Thief, I believe. And I mean, I, I didn't even realize that Pro Robert Prosky had never acted in a feature film right. prior to Thief. I mean, was there any resistance in terms of casting? I mean, Prosky obviously wasn't a non-actor at that point. He had done a lot of work. Prosky? Yeah. Absolutely. Prosky was a lead actor in the Arena Theater in Washington, D.C. Right. And I owe a great debt to Jerry Bruckheimer because Jerry Line produced Thief with me. We were very we were part of a small group with very close friends in the late 70s in yeah. Los Angeles. And uh, so Jerry was line producing it, and I must have talked to 50, 60 different actors for that part. Now, the, 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 the character is so tangible to me because he's based on two people that I knew a lot about, the Milwaukee Phil Alderizio and Leo Rugendorf, who were the two outfit figures that were combined into the character of Leo. Mm. The, um, you know, the paternalism, which was just a shell for exploitation. Yeah? And... The uh, and, and a viciousness capable of, of, of tremendous violence, and um, uh, there's not attractive violence, really ugly violence. And um, and I interviewed maybe 60 different actors, and I didn't like any of them, they were all you know, kind of cliched, um, you know, character actor, mafia boss. And at one point, I said to Jerry, we're in New York, and I said to Jerry, Look, am I doing something wrong? Have I got the wrong? Criteria I'm applying here because I'm not finding any of these guys I like. And he said, no. He just he said, no, everything's right. The guy, he hasn't walked in the room yet. When he does, trust yourself. You'll know it, you know. And then sure enough, about three or four people later, Bob, right. Robert Prosky came in, read three lines of dialogue, had an avuncular smile. He felt the menace below. I said, he's the guy. That's yeah. it, you know. I, I'm curious. I mean, it, that film you used, Tangerine Dream, for, for right. the score. Um and, and you're uh, among, you know, your many asset people talk about, the, obviously, the ways you've used, unusually over the years, um, music to great effect. Um, do you always have, like, a specific um, music landscape in mind before you shoot a, a frame of film? Or does that come afterwards? Has, has, has your philosophy about what kind of music to use changed in the course of making a film ever? Um, I try to. It's, it's much better if I do. And I did. Uh, I, I was... Pre I preconceived Tangerine Dream is doing the music to the film, but there was a dilemma that I had. I, even though I, I preconceived it as being Tangerine Dream, um, on one part of it, the other part of it was really was was I was drawn to Chicago blues and to have the track be all Chicago blues. I right. mean specifically, you know, but, you know, uh, Muddy Waters in particular, and I had I had. Uh, is when I was a student at the University of Wisconsin, um, I would come down on weekends. This is 62, 63, 64, yeah. and go to a bar on Madison and Holman, which is Muddy Waters' local bar. And he and his band, probably the best incarnation of his band, Otis Spann, he had all the great regulars he played with. Um, they played it like five nights a week and li listened to him. And... Uh, so it and it, it was so native to Chicago, and I still to this day don't know which would have been better. The the deficit of the blues was that it's so regionally specific; it right. would have locked it into this one place. Right. 
the the um, benefit of Tangerine Dream is that because it's kind of music concrete, even though a lot of what they do is based on a 12-bar blues structure, mm-hmm. music concrete is because of its ab- abstraction, it, it, it uh, opened the film up to thematic interpretations. And that was really important to me because the film is a metaphor. It's, it's no, to me anyway, it's an overtly ideological film. And um, um, it's about exploitation. It's kind of a Marxist analysis of, basically proceeds from a Marxist analysis of, of uh, based on labor theory of value, the whole exploit, the whole of the movie could have taken place in Leo Burnett Advertising Agency mm-hmm. and would have been the same, would have had the same theme, you know, thematic content. So, you know, reasoning that through, I kind of I stuck with the Tangerine Dream. It'd be great to see. It, hey, there's the another film, recut for you if you want. Film, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to put more work on your plate. I, I do not plan to go that far back in my own <laughs> okay. history to redo that movie. Uh, jumping around yeah. a little bit, just, uh, speaking of um, the way you've used, utilized music and scores and sometimes using different composers, etc. Um, I mean, for my money, the last sequence in Last of the Mohicans is one of the most stirring, fascinating, amazing pieces of filmmaking that, that anyone's yeah, done. Um, again, can you just talk me through sort of how that, that came about in terms of it being basically a silent sequence um, and, and the interaction of score and image and, 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 and silence in that sequence? Um, like with anything else, it starts with story. And story for me always begins at the end. And... Um, um, I mean, it actually, that's, that's not the genesis. The genesis is 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 is, is kind of crazily ten, tangential. Right. You know, you um, it begins with some sensory memory that kind of doesn't really associate with, but somehow does some other little factoid of life. And before you know it, you're in, in you're doing last of the Mohicans. <laughs> I, had, I remembered. Uh, I, I think I was walking around in 1990 or 91. Uh, and uh, not knowing what movie I wanted to do next and thinking about this and then when and all of a sudden it just popped into my head. Wait a minute. You've had this movie rattling around in your head since you were three. You're t- I mean, emotionally, you're just so totally taken with the poignance of something tragic about these girls and an Indian in, um, in Last of the Mohicans on one hand and something about this strange otherworldly combination of the way the Iroquois looked and compared with the uh, compared with the British soldiers, um, you know, red, red red coats. That combination to a three year old or five year old, six year old was powerful because yeah. you always saw American Indians portrayed in relationship to the West. You never saw them in the East. You know, so where the wild Northwest was the Northwest in upstate New York. Right. And there was something so wonderful about that. And then later on, I saw drums along. The Mohawk, the same thing. And um, uh, that led me into the novel, which I thought was horrible. <laughs> and um, and uh, basically a rationalization for how James Fenimore Cooper's ancestors stole a lot of land from Native Americans, uh, which is why it's called Cooperstown. And the fact that his father bragged that he'd settled more land, meaning he appropriated more land from Native Americans than anybody else in his time. That's quite a claim to fame. Uh, so con- <laughs> the, rational- the rationalization goes like this, that if uh, you the, the novel posits uh, Native Americans as noble savages, meaning they're nice people, but they're not very good stewards of the God-given lands. Therefore, we shall be the stewards for right. them. And that's the... 
you know, the basis of that work narrative. Yeah. Right. So, but then the but then it became what is in fact the end of the movie, and then working backwards into that into that uh, sequence. Today's episode of Happy, Sad, Confused is brought to you by Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now, guys, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com happy and using the code happy. Listen. Listen to the sound of my voice. This is important stuff, guys. You spend about a third of your life sleeping. I know you. At least a third. Let's make sure you're doing it on a good mattress. Casper brings together two comfy technologies together for better nights and brighter days. Latex foam and memory foam. So they've got just the right sink and just the right bounce no matter how you sleep. Plus, they've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They'll deliver it straight to you. You can try it for 100 days. And if you're not happy, they'll pick it back up, guys. At the store, maybe you get a minute to try their mattresses. With Casper, you can actually sleep on it. It's only $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Comparing that to industry standards, that is an outstanding price point, guys. So get $50 towards any mattress purchase today by going to casper.com happy and using the code happy. Terms and conditions apply. In um, I got a chance. I went also to BAM to see the uh, the print of of Heat, which looked amazing, and um, of course holds up. It's fantastic. I mean, it, it, and again, in, in terms of theme and some stuff that you often refer come back to in a lot of your films, um, I feel like you often have as much reverence for the antagonist as the protagonist. Like the the, the I mean, that film is really about duality. It feels like there there are two crews. There, um, in some ways, I feel like you have more reverence for the crooks than, than the cops in that one. I don't know if that's fair to say or not. In, uh, maybe we're, or in, in, in Heat. I mean, yeah. I don't know if, that, or that, if that's telling about me. Maybe I have more, I'm siding more with uh, Neil than, Vince, than Vincent in that one. Um, but it is fascinating because I feel like you, you split your protagonist in half in that one. It's basically you mm -hmm. have two protagonists in that one that just have opposite goals. Is that fair to say? I mean, is that, I mean, structurally, um, it's kind of a fascinating film in that you have kind of two stories that are like battling each other. What, what really challenged me in a great way, because challenge to me as an adventure, was the prospect of uh, can I create this kind of fugue like structure where the, uh, these two characters that were fully invested in each one simultaneously and they're heading towards a fatal collision. And, um, and uh, and when we're with Hannah, we're invested in Hannah's um, and the outcome of his life, his expectations. We want him to 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 catch Neil McCauley. When we're with Neil McCauley, we want him to escape Hannah and get away with Edie. Yeah. And can I have us invested simultaneously with both critical paths as they merge into this lethal conflict in which only one of them is going to survive? And on top of that, they actually met. And they like each other. Right. <laughs> as well as going to kill. So everything has two layers. That's why I say it's fugue-like. They're both operating simultaneously. Right. So that became the challenge of it. And it was only when I ha imagined that ending that I fully rewrite the screenplay and make everything conform to that dialectic kind of with reverse engineering. So it's yeah. very, very intentional that you are emotionally engaged in both of them. And I think some of the complexity of that, which 
I never want to be a parent to audience while they're watching it. I mean, you know, this is kind of the mechanisms behind and underneath right. the story. Um, the complexity there was very, very challenging, very, very, very attractive. And it and uh, I then realized that the only way to do this is is that in my mind, in my imagination, in my take on my characters, that I have to have a, um, a kind of a fiction. And that is that both of these men are the only men who are fully conscious of their lives in the whole in the universe of this film. Right. They're the only men who are yeah, fully yes. self-aware. There are no games, no tricks, no nothing. And each of them relates to reality in a in a in a certain kind of way. There is a um, there is a uh, there was a prison poem that went something like "Realness is a motherfucker. It walks in its own shoes. It eats raw meat. It never wavers." And you know when you relate to um, reality that way when you know that all I am is who I'm going after. Yeah. You know, as Hannah says to Justine, um, and uh, I'm nothing without you, as, as Neil says to Edie, you know, that's powerful stuff, but it needed that setup too in the beginning, if you think about it. That everybody else is leading normal lives and, you know, whatever delusions they may have or including Chris Hurlis we talked about, yeah. who just has no conscience, has, doesn't even feel the obligation to have awareness, you know. And it's funny, you're right. I mean, and, and Vincent and Neil, like, they're kind of aware of their own inevitability and, and maybe maybe know in their heart of hearts they're destined to fail or, or they know one of who, them They know fail. who they are in every single moment, and yeah. they know every choice. They know, every, they know that all the responsibility is theirs, that if there was some kind of a omniscient, microscope that could measure causality, that could see and, and reproduce causality, yeah. that there's not a thing that happens to them that they didn't cause somehow, some way, even if it's so obscure you can't see it. That's our lives, by the way, did, I think. Did, did Pacino's, I mean, a, a lot of that, if not all of it, I would assume is in the script, but his explosive performance, which like, and it, it felt even bigger, it's kind of watching it with an audience, it becomes like a, a cathartic kind of humorous, breaks the tension at times, kind of the way he kind of explodes. Did Was that something that was always in the script, or was that something that he came to the table? Oh, that, was, that was always in the script, yeah. because it's not, it's method. It's not, I mean, it's, it's his character's method. Yeah. It's a kind of street theater when you, and it's actually, it's, it's actually observed, uh, observed it firsthand many, many times. And it's, it's, it's how, it's, it's in that relationship of how a cop, a detective will, will, will manage, I mean, manage his, uh, his informant because informants lie. They lie to the people they with. They will lie to you if they can get away with it. So you have to keep them on edge. Right. Okay. Or they will deceive you. If they if they weren't deceptive, they wouldn't be informants. They're ratting somebody out. Okay. Right. So they'll lie. You know, they'll rat out some people, not others. So, um, so he's using Hannah's characters. Hannah's characters' method yeah. is absolutely to keep is, is to keep Ricky Harris guessing. Yeah. You know, Ricky Harris has no idea what Hannah's going to do or say next. You know, and that's it was a method. So even if it was an actor other than Al Pacino playing that role, those scenes would still yeah. some of the explosiveness, some of the unpredictability would would be there. When, when you saw uh, what Nolan did with The Dark Knight, did you see elements of heat in there? I, mean, I think he he's talked about that. I mean, it, it, he's it, talked it about it quite a bit. He's a friend. He's a really good friend, and he's talked about that quite a bit. Um, 
I actually don't. No, I mean I don't. I, I don't look at it and say, "Oh, this was great. This was inspired by." Right. And there's work of directors who came before me who've inspired my work. So mm-hmm. this isn't this isn't this isn't like this isn't plagiarism, <laughs> or right. it's not it's not even derivative. I mean, this is this is what you're supposed to do. You, you're supposed to. But he was taken by some components of it. I don't know exactly what it. What it is, maybe it's an attitude, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think some people also think of that, even just the opening heist scene, that propulsive kind of nature of it, it, it recalls maybe in some ways your, your, one of your, your key, the key heist in the middle of the, or towards the end of the film. I think, I think it's, it's suspending, uh, art, it may have to do with suspending artificial, um, um, or, or suspending conventional moral mm-hmm. you know, values and two poles, and instead taking life as it really yeah. really is and that admixture of of components that are in people do you uh I mean, people don't walk around I mean, real people don't walk around saying oh i'm a good person right. and then that's <laughs> the end of that story right yeah. do you uh you've operated camera yourself for at least a fair amount in some of your films you sometimes en- yeah i mean do you enjoy doing that i mean you uh, again sort of a hallmark in, in a lot of your films and i think of like the insider or up to black hat is is you're in the face of your characters right like, i mean you're clearly in love with with the faces of actors like there's a lot you can obviously that's all you need sometimes um whether you're on their shoulder right. or in front of them um where did that come from was that something that you just sort of like evolved over the years or um I have, first of all, I have tremendous admiration for my camera crew, and I've had a lot of the same guys for, I don't know, 20, I don't know, 20 some odd years. Um, and the, but what it comes from is, well, I'll just take, for example, Insider. I probably did more operating in Insider than nothing else. And so when I had, you know, worked with Russell to, to bring him into the character of Jeffrey Wigand, a man who's uncomfortable in his own skin. Yeah. And um, who does everything effectively, but with little grace. So Russell had, for example, had to learn how to be powerful in judo, but not very elegant. (laughs) He had to learn how to be a powerful golfer, but have an ugly swing. Got it. Okay. So that was, so all of the, uh, consequently, with the closeness of my connection to Russell, uh, directing him and, and, and his grasp of the character, it, when I was behind the camera and we were on a tight lens, I knew how that next line of dialogue was going to impact him. And I didn't know exactly what Russell would do because I'm a big believer in spontaneity. But I knew that just that sliding it over just ever so much so that a shadow hit a different, you know, created, a different shadow was created on his face because he's yeah. going to move in a certain way and I wanted to capture him. So it made for a certain intimacy. So for most of the... Meaningful dialogue scenes. I was twenty four inches away from him. I'm behind the camera. The lenses in his face. Wow. And there was so, and I absolutely felt that connection, almost like if there was a dialogue between Russell and and uh, and Lowell, played by Al Pacino. That there was a third actor in the scene. That's me in the camera. Yeah. And so it was a very very intimate experience. And all of us. Do you find do you, do you need to get back to video village and see playback to know what you got or not do you if I'm operating? Know? I know if I'm operating, I see it. Otherwise, I'm in video video village, which yeah. is not a village. <laughs> <laughs> it's a village of one one man. One. I'm not as bad as 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 as, as Martin as Marty as Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I mean, he has a tent. He has these giant truck mirrors. Is that right? Yes, to the right and left of the tent, so he could see if anybody's trying to peek over his shoulder. <laughs> I mean. He's, 
So. Who knew Martin Scorsese was insecure? My God, he doesn't yeah. need it. <laughs> Everybody trusts his judgment always. Um, you, you've obviously experimented and more than experimented in some films with digital. Right. Um, I think of Collateral, and obviously many do, as, as one of like a, a big hallmark and a, a transition in terms of using digital for... I mean, I don't know what percentage of the film or all the film. Was it all in digital or... Collateral is all digital. So... So give me a sense of sort of like, did that feel like a leap at the time? And why was it necessary? Or why did you feel it was necessary at the time? Why, why did it lend itself to that? It project? felt like a leap off a tall building. Yeah. That's what it felt like. Because <laughs> this, it was the first photo reel digital feature film, meaning there had been some digital f animation right. feature films prior to it. This is the first one. So there was no lookup tables. There was no the equivalent of a color chart. There was nothing. So we were totally... Flying blind. I had the first yourself. two, three weeks of shooting. I had these horrible nightmares that <laughs> that that uh, all the guys at DreamWorks, you know, uh, who were friends of mine, are going to Jeffrey Katzenberg, Steven Spielberg, are going to realize pretty soon that there's no there's no there's no record of anything we did. <laughs> it's only you know it's all conceptual art. It's only in my imagination. Zeros and ones. I should have. These were the nightmares, but <laughs> we had done months and months and months of R and D yeah. beforehand um, to uh, figure out how to know what we were getting and that in fact we were getting it. Um, but the, the the excitement about it, the reason to do it and to and to evolve that that technology on that film was, if you imagine it, the whole film takes place at night. It's one night, which was this gem-like uh, uh, construction or circumstances of the movie, which was so why it's so attractive to me because I'd made about three movies in a row that were very large in scale, right. and the idea of going to the opposite extreme. And doing something that was like a like a diamond that had you know, everything was in the refractions within the walls of the yeah. stone and just one you know kind of a, a real unified singularity um, of the, of experience over two hours. So, but you with film you can't see end of the night. You can't see distance. You can't because you're shooting so wide open that you have a very narrow depth of field. Anything beyond your subjects becomes soft focus. And um, and I and what LA looks like at night sometimes is extraordinary when the marine layer is the cloud layer comes in at that time of year and it's still about twelve hundred feet and all the sodium vapor bounces off the bottom and so it becomes like a soft yellow orange uh, fill and illuminates everything so it's kind of like um, I don't know late afternoon in the winter in northern Europe and. Um, uh, that they inhabit this world and all this whole drama, this whole story takes place in it. So, of course, you'd want to see it. But then something else was that there was something that we discovered on Ali. When there's a, two or three sequences shot with, uh, with video on Ali, and the, the, the um, light sensitivity uh, in the cameras was so great that we, we could use very little, almost no lighting. And there was a scene where Ali's on a rooftop in Chicago, and uh, it's, the, it's the night after Martin Luther King is killed. There's riots in the street. Right. And I'm seeing Will. I'm seeing the whole streets. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, hit with this huge question. Why is this so real to me? Why is my believability so intense about this scene, about what Will's doing? Yeah. I totally believe this. This is really happening. You know? And it was, I realized it was because of the subtraction of the of conventional theatrical lighting, even when it's beautiful done by Storaro. 
you pull it out and it looks like it's not there, which is, of course, there's plenty of light in there. But if it looks like it's not there, it has that flat mid-range. Right. You just you just believe it, you know, and that's what we aspire to with I think that's frankly, that that's what what caught people some some people off guard at first maybe with public enemies if fair to say yeah. which is something we're as you say we're kind of so conditioned to see especially a film a period film of that type look a certain way and that film has such immediacy and reality in a way that we're not used to right. interpreting it was kind of like it took it took a little moment for me at least to kind of well, tune so into there's, it there's two things about both of those films when Collateral came out, there were no digital cinemas. So consequently, you didn't see what I shot at all. You didn't see what, you didn't, it wasn't even close to what I shot yeah. because you had these indifferent bulk release prints that the labs used to churn out, and they were horrible. Their, their tolerances were, were a joke. It was just awful. And every director I know was bemoaning it. So all the, you know, uh, Chris Nolan, who's a particular advocate of shooting on film, I love shooting on film too. But it's great for those of us who are going to see it uh, as an EK print, right. meaning right off the camera original. For everybody else getting these bulk release prints, it was terrible. And so uh, I couldn't watch the release prints on Collateral. Um, this one we're showing on, uh, I think it's on the next, on the 16th, right. February 16th, is the first time it's ever been seen on the screen in this native digital format. Meaning, when I'm sitting there color timing and I'm looking at it on a big screen at Company 3, something called we call CTM, a color time master, I'm seeing the film I shot. Nobody else is. So now with digital cinema, you know, everybody else is seeing that same thing. Yeah. Is it, uh, backtracking to Public Enemies, I'm just curious your take on that in terms of the choice to shoot digital on It came that. down to the wire. We were... You were going back and forth. We, we were uh, either film or, Got it. Or, or shooting high def. And Dante Spinati, who I worked with on five films, yeah. and I were splitting it. And it came down to this. If I shot on film, it was very beautiful. And it looked, and it looked like uh, an artifact, it looked like a historical artifact, um, a very elegant historical period artifact. And if I shot digitally, it looked like I'm there. Yep. I'm absolutely there. It really is 1933. And this is what 1933 looks like for real. If, yep. you, are, if you went to a time, a black hole in space <laughs> and showed up in Chicago on Lincoln Truly. Yep. Avenue in 1933. Um, and so I went for that again. Only if you saw it in a digital right. cinema, which today would be everywhere. Yeah, with the DCP, would you see it? Speaking of sort of like the, the landscape. Oh, of, by the way, it's not the, it's not what it looks like. These are not visual issues. These are how these are how, totally yeah. emotional engagement. How yeah. fe, you know I feel. You can you can jump into the skin of Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise. Yeah. And, you know, you feel everything they're saying. You, you see the thought, you feel the thoughts behind the words coming out of Tom's mouth when he's manipulating Jamie in the cab. Sure. What, uh, Ask him if he'd ever been to Rwanda or something. <laughs> Does, um... The landscape of film today, um, I mean, you've never really done, quote unquote, a franchise film. I mean, right. my, my Miami Vice could be considered, I mean, it was obviously derived from work that you had a, a huge influence on in the first place. But, I mean, have you, I assume you've been offered franchises. Have you been tempted to give your take on a Mission Impossible? I feel like I could see a Michael Mann Mission Impossible, yeah. for instance. Almost. But then what stops me is the notion of I'm on a stage and there's a gigantic 
green screen. There's a piece of tape on it. And I'm right. saying to the actor, you see that piece of tape? That's not really a piece of tape. That's really a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> you need that mountain. <laughs> That's a mountain. It's falling on you. you know? <laughs> I, can't get, I can't really, you know, it's... So that's kind of kept me away Got from it. it. There's a science fiction thing I want to do, which I may find myself in exactly that situation. Oh, Although now with the way LEDs are being used, yeah. you know, it's not as brutal uh, as, you know. You, you piqued my interest by mentioning sci-fi. I'm curious to see what a Michael Mann sci-fi film would be. Can you say anything about well, what kind of a film would it be? Or uh, thematically we'll or anything? We'll see. Okay, fair enough. A distant future for sure. Anyway. Um, more, more close at hand, uh, you're, you're going to do the Ferrari film yes yeah it's a ferrari um what what's intriguing about that man that 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 story it's, it's not a biopic from cradle to grave this is not at all it's the exact opposite it's a very narrow slice of one year in his life so yeah. it's really an opera family drama um he had he had he literally had two uh, households functioning simultaneously he lives in a town that had two opera companies two football teams and two race car manufacturers and they all knew each other and uh and uh kind of cut each other up with this kind of strafing wit all the time and everything was in a crisis and it got it worse in 1957 it was also a time when the cars because of his genius as an engineer made tremendous power but the technology for brakes and safety hadn't caught up yeah. So they he could so uh, there's recently a, a 335s which was 1957 that just sold for a fortune in, at auction and um, in Europe and um, uh, there's two of those that are supposed to be in our film but he uh, those cars would do 300 kilometers about 200 miles an hour but they they didn't have disc brakes yeah uh, they didn't have safety they didn't have seat belts I mean it was so it's and the town is a is an elegant elegant. Modena is an elegant place, and um, um, so it's really a, uh, it's very regionally specific, and uh, um, and the more specific I make it, the more universal the story right. becomes. Have you, uh, I know Christian was, was attached to it, that, yeah. that fell apart, unfortunately, because of uh, issues, weight <laughs> going up and down, it's tough for him, I guess, I mean, it's well, tough for any actor. if you track with him from... The machinist I mean, when he was one twenty eight, yeah. and then two seventeen for Batman, then yeah. back down to one thirty for the fighter, then back up. You know, for America, so you can only do that so many times. You can only do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's not a health. Have you found your uh, your leading man yet? We're in a discussion with the one. Okay. I mean, is this the fun time right now? I mean, what's the what's the time in the process that you love the most? I mean, see, I mean, I, I, it seems like you love the research, you love diving into that, but I would think getting on set is 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 fantastic or or mind you know it's really a cycle through all of that yeah. that gets that really gets me i mean the idea of kind of being a cultural a very very lowercase c <laughs> cultural anthropologist mm -hmm. and diving into character in that narrow spectrum you know yeah. but you go very deep so it's kind of a core sample of a narrow spectrum that's fascinating to me, and I really can get lost and on occasion have gotten lost in, in the research <laughs> wandering around the Shan Mountains or something, and and um, uh, that's great, and I love the writing, but it gets, it gets a moment in time when I'm tired of the research, tired of the writing, and then you find yourself in pre-production, and that's great, and now the whole thing keeps expanding, and you have this massive you know, engine called a film crew and company and tremendously talented folks, and you're making a movie, and it's two, three hundred of you sometimes. 
you're having a wonderful shared experience. And just when that gets to be too much, you get to be by yourself right. in the editing room. <laughs> get away from me, everybody. Sit and tired, sick and tired of, it, of being with people who get maladjusted because they are in dark rooms to their whole life. <laughs> you know, it's finally time for the movie to be on a sound stage, then released, and the whole cycle starts again. <laughs> so, yeah, so. Coming full circle to some stuff that we were talking about earlier, are there any characters, whether it's supporting characters or, or protagonists that you've that have been in your films that, whether you, you've seriously considered it or not, that you've thought about exploring in a further incarnation, like doing uh, another film about Vincent Hanna or whatever? Mohegan's? Is one I could easily do a prequel or sequel to. Yeah. Um, uh, a prequel to Heat is possible. I mean, I, I know those. I know every one of those people. It seems like you always have so the backstory well. of every single character. You just every single character about. in yeah. Heat. Um, and um, you know what their stories were from Wayne Grow to Shahrulis to you know right. all of them. Um, and, um, you know, the further adventures of life of Lowell Bergman from, from Insider. <laughs> I Berkeley. think I could have done, I could do, this is really going to sound weird. I could do a different John Dillinger story. It, nobody will ever in a million years pay for me to do a new John Dillinger story. But there was one whole aspect of that guy's life that I, that, that, um, that my film didn't touch on. And, uh, I, f I found very, very, I find very interesting, which is what was his end game? He had none. And this is one of the smartest people around, a guy who's out of touch from society for 11 years. And within two or three weeks of getting out of prison, he knows the hip neighborhood to live in in Chicago. Right. He, the vernacular, what's current, and it's not like they had television in 1933 in prisons in Indiana. And um, uh, so he, he, the rate at which he tuned in and his sophistication and logistics, and he's a brilliant guy, really thinking quickly, culturally attuned to what purpose, where does he think he's going? He's incorporated the most cutting-edge technology into what he's doing, into his logistics. The V8 automobile, a highway system that's only three years old. The notion of being totally transient all the time, making that your human condition, okay? Because then they can't find you. Because you could rob a bank in Wisconsin, drive into Illinois, and you're home free. There was right. no interstate. There was no, there was no federal prosecution right. for that. Um, police departments didn't talk to each other. Information couldn't travel. It's a fascinating kind of like double bill with Black Hat talking about interconnectivity and, and a total lack of such in back in public. Exactly, except he's he's one step ahead into the future. The only other person who's as, who's as smart about about information and technology as he is 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 is, is this reactionary creature, Jerry Hoover, <laughs> and um, uh, who's quite brilliant in how he used. Uh, the, the technology, the available technology, and yeah. and uh, and uh, and data processing for his time. Um, but where do you think it was going? That whole question, you know, still haunts me. You know, Clearly. and my film didn't deal with that, right? You know, um, I want to touch on briefly just a television, which obviously, right. I mean, your involvement in whether Miami Vice or Crime Story or Luck in more recent years. Um, are you interested in going back to TV? What's developing, whether it's a heat prequel TV series or whatever, is that yeah. something that intrigues you? I am. And um, there's a couple of stories I'm really excited about, about telling. And they have, um, they have, uh, in fact, one of them is, is the uh, kind of savage wilderness of frontier America in the earlier 1700s. Oh, nice. That's something I'm really fascinated with. Uh, 
that and um, there's also an epical story that drives us into uh, South, Southeast Asia and some of the same geographical territory and some of the same issues as, as Black Hat, sure. but not about a hacker. Does, does part of you, there's so much love right now for television, and I feel like film... There should be. It's the best writing, it's the best writing in English language on the planet that's happening in American television. What are your, can you the Brits are starting to catch up, particularly yeah. something like London Spy, which just came on. It's very oh, good. Seen, okay. What, what are yeah. some of your favorites? Can you list a couple that have intrigued you in recent years? Uh, well, my favorites begin with everything that Ted Sarandos and Michael Lombardo, both Netflix and HBO, have done over the last three, four years. Yeah. Um, the first the first season of True Detective I thought was just spectacular. Yeah. Um, uh, I like Mr. Robot. You know, I mean, it's this is great stuff. There is. Um, I feel I should I should release you back into the wild because the, I, I'm, I'm I, we we only touched on about half of your films, but I'm right. I, it, the, we'll save some for the next conversation, I guess. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for coming by today. I'm, no, I'm such, such an admirer of your work, and and uh, I hope folks get a chance to see Black Hat in this new incarnation, whether it's on the screen or a, cra- a great new Blu-ray or whatever. Um, it's well worth checking out again. Great, thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Great to talk to you. Hey, Earwolf listeners, this is Hillary Frank from The Longest Shortest Time, where we ask the hard-hitting questions. What will happen if I don't have a shadow? What does the tooth fairy do with her tooth? Am I the real Batman? Who's Jesus' grandparents? John Willis, age three, bringing out the big guns. <laughs> I'm actually, like, rattled. The Longest Shortest Time. It's the parenting show for everyone. Listen at LongestShortestTime.com, Earwolf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.